Revelation chapter 3, you're going to be looking at, <coughs> excuse me, the church at Sardis. I believe that there's an important lesson in, uh, to learn in life, and that's seeing is not always believing. Important lesson. Uh, and this is not to sound cynical, uh, but you can't always trust your eyes. And this is very, very important in church circles. Isn't it interesting how impressed people become when they hear of a church with surging membership, multi-million dollar budgets, huge facilities, everything's going on there, and we think, wow, wish we could be like them. They have all kinds of programs, and they have so many different ministries and influence in the community. A church like that many times becomes the envy, uh, envy of many ministers. I think about the times when I used to go to Bible conferences for pastors when I was a pastor. And it's interesting, it was, the only ones that they would invite to speak are only those who had, quote, those big successful churches. Not, I never went to one conference, not one, that had a speaker who was a pastor of a small church. Because we're so impressed with all of the big stuff. See, we base our judgment on what we see, numbers and activities. And this is not restricted to the mega churches. It's just more conspicuous with them. We see it very clearly, and we have to be careful. There are much smaller churches, of course, that are known for their activity in the community, but yet they are um, devoid of that authentic commitment to Jesus Christ. And I think that's very critical. Most churches uh, advertising have all kinds of gimmicks that they throw out there. They have all kinds of celebrity guest speakers. In fact, I saw one uh, advertisement for a church that said, hey, come and join us. We have the Easter rabbit that's going to bring the message to you this Sunday morning. Yeah. So some guy dressed up in a rabbit is going to come and get... How do you take a person like that serious? But that's the kind of advertising that, wow, they are... Look at that, how effective they are. And I begin to scratch my head. Are they? They offer goodies and all kinds of things to attract and draw people. And just seeing these churches, they look like they're active. They look like they're alive. Yet the reality is that many of them, in the eyes of God, are dead. The church in Sardis in the first century is like this. One writer describes it like this, this church. He said, when you go to a funeral, you see all kinds of flowers, bright and vivid colors, which are all designed in part to divert some of the attention from the dark reality of death that is present. The church at Sardis was like this, and sad to say many churches today are like this. In the church at Sardis, they had, had everything that they needed, yet we will see there was the stench of death. They looked active, they looked good, they looked like, yes, that's the church we want to be, but we're going to see that they were really dead. See, the only commendation that they received when, you, when we read this, you'll see, is that they had a good reputation. In other words, they looked good. Okay, They appeared good, if you will. However, they were really a dead church, and their so-called good works were not as impressive as they should have been. And so some have labeled this church as the morgue with a steeple, and rightly so. Now, the city itself is an interesting city with a, an interesting uh, history. It was a city that was a, a exceedingly fabled for its past wealth and splendor, but it deteriorated very quickly. 
Its greatness lay in its history, in its past. It flourished during the 6th century BC, so it was a, a, a major city back then. It had been considered at one time to be impenetrable. Nobody can get to it because it was on a, a hill, some called it a mountain on the side, and there was cliffs all around, and there's only one narrow path to get to it. So it would be virtually impenetrable. At least that's what it was considered. But the city fell to enemy hands twice because they were so overconfident in their natural fortifications that nobody can get to them that they dropped their guard and they didn't have anybody to protect them and guard them and thus enemies marched in. Uh, they were attacked and conquered because of their arrogance. And the kind of the city was aggravated by a devastating earthquake in A.D. 17. It was described by Pliny. He's an ancient Roman philosopher. And he described in the early 2nd century, he said that it was the greatest disaster in human memory. He stated that no city in Asia presented a more deplorable contrast of past splendor and present unresting decline. So it was a major city, very active, very successful, but it had declined rather rapidly. The city was famous for its woolen and textile uh, industry. It had uh, jewelry industry. So it had um, a good business going on. Things were happening there. Sardis was also devoted to the worship of the mother goddess Cybele. It's interesting because the, the contrast there is absolutely amazing. No temple worshiper, nobody who wanted to worship this god was allowed to approach the temple with soiled or unclean garments. You had to be clean. You had to have a white and clean robe to approach this so-called God. Yet her worship was the most debasing character along with the most debauched orgies that you could ever imagine. Some of the worst and grossest depravities existed in this city that worshipped this so-called God that you had to be spotless for. Amazing, the contradiction. And from this incredibly wicked environment, this church at Sardis was called out. And when the church started from the history we have, it started strong. But it quickly drifted into compromise with the culture. And it is no surprise that the letter to this church is one of the most severe of all seven of the letters that Jesus wrote. Jesus had nothing good to say about the church at Sardis. You'll see there's no commendation. And so this letter stands in contrast to the first four letters we've already looked at in chapter 2. Because in each of those letters, though there were problems, he always started off with a greeting and a commendation. There's something good about it. Not this church. Sardis didn't receive any commendation. Immediately they were condemned. One pastor indicated that it is very telling that both Jews and Romans apparently left this church untouched when they so vigorously persecuted their neighbors. See, they persecute the other churches, but they didn't persecute this church. Why? Because as far as Satan is concerned, they're not a threat. They're not effective. Leave them alone. Don't waste time on them. And that's why the Romans and uh, the, the Orthodox Jews left them alone. There was no persecution there for these people at this church. And they had so declined and compromised, they literally were not a threat. And they were the classic embodiment of what we call inoffensive Christianity. 
inoffensive Christianity. Now, some people have a problem with that. So let me ask you something. Should Christianity be offensive? Why? Many of you are saying yes. Why? Exposes our sin. Exposes our sin? It goes against the culture. It goes against the culture? Yeah. We hated Jesus. We're people hate the Christians. Yeah. If you don't want to turn people off and say, I don't want to be like they, they are. True. We don't want to turn people off, but. Scripture teaches that the cross is offensive. Yeah. The cross is offensive. Think about it. You know, when, when I used to teach uh, at the college, we, I would have students that would always have a problem with this. So I thought we were supposed to be loving people. I said, yeah, we are. What's the most loving thing you can do? Tell the truth. Tell the truth. Exactly right. And then I would ask him, who is the most offensive person we know? Jesus Christ. You go to John chapter uh, 10. He had this huge following, chapter 8 or chapter 8, had this huge following, and people followed. By the end of the chapter, there in verse 66, it says they all turned away from him. As I think about it, he must have had at least two, three hundred people that were following with him. And by the end of the time that he finished speaking, they all left. The only ones that were left were the apostles. He looked at them and said, are you going anywhere? And Peter said, where shall we go? You have the words of truth. So he went from what we would call a congregation of three or four hundred down to twelve. Today, they would consider him a failure as a pastor. He's the most offensive person. Why? Because holiness and darkness don't mix. And when we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ and lift him up and lift his glory up, the world hates it. It is offensive to them. It is offensive. This church at Sardis was not offensive. They just blended into the culture. So everybody felt welcome. And the most loving thing you can do is to be offensive in the sense of exposing sin so that people would repent and trust in Christ. Because if we allow them to continue to hide in their sin, what happens when they die? Yeah. So the most loving thing we can do is, yes, offend people with the gospel. Now, again, I want to be careful when I say we need to offend people. I'm saying offend people with the gospel, not with the way you act, right? Not with the things, that, the certain ways that, that you speak. But Christianity is offensive to this world. That's why there's so much persecution. Even when we present it lovingly, it's still offensive because people don't want to turn away from their sin. Right. In fact, the common thing is, who are you to judge me? And I love to tell people, who am I? I'm a child of God who's taking God's word. It's not I who judge, but God's word judges. They still don't like it. <laughs> but it, it, it is. It, it, it's offensive, and we need to understand that. And we have too many churches today, and I've heard it in my own ears. We're not here to offend people. And I'm thinking, then, what are you here to do? You become just another social club. This church at Sardis looked good from the outside, but we will see they were actually dead. Strong words. They acquired a reputation in Asia Minor as a great congregation. And to all external appearances, as far as what could be seen and heard, Sardis would be considered a progressive church. If we could actually see a church like Sardis today, we would all look at it and say, that's a pretty decent church. That looks like a church that is going well. 
they initiated different programs. Uh, we would say that uh, people would say that they were full of vitality, overflowing with zeal. But John Stott, I love the way he described the church at Sardis. I love the way he says it, so I'm just going to read it and let him speak. He said, It was positively humming with activity. There was no shortage in the church of money or talent or manpower. There was every indication of life and vigor. But outward appearances are notoriously deceptive. And this socially distinguished congregation was a spiritual graveyard. It seemed to be alive, but it was actually dead. It had a name for virility, but it had no right to its name. Its works were beautiful grave clothes, which were but a thin disguise for this ecclesiastical corpse. The eyes of Christ saw beyond the clothes to the skeleton. It was dead as mutton, it even stank. Only John Stock could say those things. See, God is not interested in a church that only looks good. Anybody can fake it, right? Anybody could put a coat, a coat of paint on and look good. But though filled with external activities, this church was known as the sleeping or dead church. Paul, Paul put it this way uh, in 2 Timothy 3, 5. He said they had a form of godliness, but what? They had no power. Because of their failure to walk with the Lord, they were denying the real power of God through their hypocrisy. And that's what it is. It is hypocrisy. God said in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, He said, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. So Jesus used this against the Pharisees, and He said in Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 to 28, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you, too, outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Strong words of what Jesus thinks of people who put on this facade and look, quote, spiritual on the outside, but inside they are far away. They are out of touch with elements of true spirituality, this church. No doubt many of them were just simply professing Christians. Others probably were what they call carnal believers, whatever you want to call them. They had a good start but failed to keep it up. So they were active. They were engaged in activity. But they were dead out of fellowship with Jesus Christ. And I believe that there are many churches today who fall under the same um, description as Sardis. And we have to be careful because it's very easy to be fooled by them and even to listen to them. A reputation without corresponding reality is worthless in the eyes of Jesus Christ. And that's why his words in this letter are incredibly forceful and to the point. And I pray that we would heed the warning that Jesus gives because the reality is many don't. They don't even consider it. He's addressing the church as a whole. But remember, the church is made up of individuals, and that's where it begins. So if a church is dead, it's dead because the people in it are dead. So we need to search our hearts continually. Don't think that this is above us or beyond us, because, see, that's one of the greatest weaknesses. That's what Satan likes to do. Because whenever I've talked about this church at Sardis before, people say, yeah, but that's not us. Yeah, but that's not me. And I say, isn't it? 
You better search the heart. Because you may not be there yet, but you may be on the pathway there. Sardis was a great church when it started. But it took some time, but they did go down that path to the point where Jesus says, you are dead. It can happen. And so I think for us, we need to take heed to the warning. Do we strive to look good spiritually on the outside? But inside we're full of dead men's bones. Pray. God, reveal to me this reality in my life if it's there and help me to repent. We'll see that more later. So let's look at the, the first verse. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has seven, uh, the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. So he begins to address this dire situation and he describes himself. Note the first description. He had the seven spirits of God. And this is a reference to the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son to the believer. You could read about that in John chapter 7. Uh, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit being sent in John chapter 15 as well. We don't have time to get into it. Uh, but the Holy Spirit is sent by God uh, for the sake of building up and strengthening. And so... He is the gift of Jesus Christ to enable believers to experience genuine spirituality. And uh, he does that through the different ministries that he has. The Holy Spirit enters in, but it's not, he doesn't just enter in and stay there and does nothing. When you read scripture, you'll see that there are many different ministries that the Holy Spirit has when he dwells in us. And the work of the Holy Spirit is symbolized here in the number seven. And this is an illusion to the sevenfold ministry of the Spirit that's mentioned in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 2 through 5. You could jot that down and look it up later. But there it talks about how the Spirit is going to come upon Jesus. And it says that He is the Spirit of this and the Spirit of that. And He talks about the different ministries, and there's seven of them that are there. And so this is a, every scholar that I've read believes that this is an allusion to that. And so it's a reference to the Holy Spirit that is sent, and we have a responsibility to walk by the Spirit who indwells us. We see that in Scripture everywhere. We're to walk by the Spirit. So I believe that the reason why Jesus addresses himself this way is because part of the problem is that the believers at this church at Sardis were grieving and quenching the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Each of these letters, when he addresses himself, he describes himself in a way that addresses the problem that they're having in here the fact that he has the seven spirit, the seven, I'll call it the sevenfold ministry of the spirit, indicates that they were grieving the spirit. Well, a dead church does not honor the spirit, it grieves and quenches the spirit. I believe that was one of their big issues. And then he talks about having the seven stars. We've seen this before. Back in chapter one, it refers to the leadership of the church. And of course, the leadership of the church or the pastor of the church, some believe it was the pastor's. Their primary responsibility was to hold forth the light of the Word of God to the flock. That's the responsibility of the shepherd, the pastor. He is to feed God's Word to the flock. And so it appears here that another area of weakness, a key area of weakness, is the failure to communicate and receive God's Word in a consistent and in-depth way. Clearly the pastor or the leader was not teaching the way he should be. And you could see that in many churches today. Dead churches. If you listen to the preaching, I don't even like to call it preaching. If you listen to the talking, that's all it is. 
incredibly shallow. And so these two life-giving provisions from God to man, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, were being neglected. And as a result, they were dead. And Jesus says that. You're dead. And I want to mention again, because it's so important and sadly so prevalent today, all too often, the criteria by which we judge success and the criteria that God uses are different. And we have to be careful because I've seen it happen way too much. What constitutes good, effective, Christ-exalting ministry is one thing to the world and even to the church, but it's another thing altogether to God. And that's why we must come before God constantly that we are walking with Him. And what makes this so significant is the emphasis that Jesus puts on this. As I said before, with each of the previous four churches, Jesus begins with a commendation. But you notice, he does it here. He opens up with a condemnation. He does so because a dead church is deadly to the cause of Christ. Why is that? Why is a dead church so deadly to the cause of Christ? It's false teaching. What's that? False teaching. False teaching? They're giving people a false hope. Giving people false hope. And so there are many who, quote, believe that if something happens to them, they know where they're going, when in reality, they're not going there. But ultimately, why does the church exist? Give glory to God. We exist for one purpose. That all honor and all glory in our lives and together as a church goes to Him. A dead church cannot do that. Therefore, it is offensive to God. In fact, I would dare say, don't call yourself a church. Call yourself whatever you want, but don't call yourself a church. Because a dead church is offensive to a holy God. It does not give glory to God. In fact, you look at most dead churches, the glory is all about, look at what we have done, look at me. Something that God despises. And that's why Jesus was so harsh, and rightly so. And know what Jesus tells them here. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. He knows them. He knows everything about them. So they may look good on the outside, but Jesus knows the truth. He knows the reality. They looked good on the outside. They looked alive on the outside. But Jesus makes it clear, you are dead. He doesn't mince words. You are dead. That which is invisible to men is perfectly clear to the Lord Jesus Christ. And his, uh, he's in the business of revealing our true conditions, regardless of how spiritual we may think we are. Because he loves us. That's why he does this. So we see that they had a name, a reputation, if you will. This is what people thought. This is how they see this church. In general, they appeared to the general public and other Christians as, Good! Hey, come and join us. Look at what we have done and what we're doing. They were an active church full of programs, as I said. But again, this is all that people see. But notice what Jesus said. But, man, you should circle that word. But, the Greek here is a huge 
emphasis of contrast. Many times in Scripture, that word is used, especially in the New Testament. Think about it in uh, Ephesians chapter 2. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, right? First three verses, we are absolutely dead with no life. What's the first word in verse 4? But God. But God. You have this reputation that you're alive and active, but, what's the contrast? You are dead. It's a huge emphasis. But you are dead. But you are without true spiritual vitality. This is what the Lord saw. And this is what the Lord knew. And he's making it very evident with an incredible emphasis. He wants to wake them up. He's not just patting them on the shoulder and saying, I know you're dead, but you know, that's okay. We'll, we'll take care of it. He wants to wake them up. You look like you're alive, but I assure you, you are dead. Emphatic. And so the point is they had a reputation. They were known far and wide. They were active, filled with activity, actions, programs, all of these things. Like many churches across America today. By the world standards, they were successful. And they no doubt were proud of their church. Yeah, I belong to the church at Sardis. Man, we're active. You see what we're doing. But our Lord says, mm -mm. But you are dead. And note, this is God's evaluation, not man's. Man's evaluation is directly opposite of what God thinks. Now I want to clarify something here briefly. By death, Jesus did not mean altogether lifeless and without hope. He's not saying that. Because later in verse 4, he indicates that the church still had a few people who have not soiled their garments. So there is a glimmer of hope for them. There's one final chance for renewal, for hope. The church is in a very sorry state. They're filled with hypocrisy. Filled with religiosity in many respects, only nominally Christian. And that a church could be widely known for its activity and influence, all the while dead in its estimation of Christ. This is frightening. This is frightening because it can happen to us as individuals. And it could happen to family. It could happen to people we know. It should cause us to take a stand and realize, Lord, make it clear who is dead and who is not, that we may pray for them and Work with them. And the churches are, it, it, it's everywhere. I had a call yesterday morning from a friend who lives up in about an hour north of Tallahassee. He is, uh, I was his pastor at one time. And he, he, he just calls, he says, you know, I've yet to find a church. We have visited every church around here. We can't find a church. You should hear what they call preaching here. <laughs> Very frustrated. My sister-in-law, Pam's sister and her husband just moved up to Chattanooga. Church on every street corner, literally. It's one of the most churched areas in the country. And they've yet to find a church. They went to a church last week that you and I would look at and say, wow, it's active. They had all kinds of stuff going on. But this pastor got up to preach, and he preached on all seven churches in one sermon. And he also said that we don't use the word church here. And uh, I don't know what his reason is. And he says, and we don't, we don't use the word Christian because it's a man-made word. 
See, I want to ask this pastor, what do you do in Acts where it says they called them Christians? It's in the text. It's not a man-made word. It's an inspired word of God. But yet it's a flourishing church. The community loves them. And it's everywhere. I want us to wake up to the reality of this and realize and oh, praise God and thank Him for Lakeside. Because you don't see many of these churches around. We really don't. We live up on holiday. The reason why we come here is because there's not that many up there that we can go to. And I say that because please, 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 side note, please be praying for the church. Because if it happened to the church at Sardis, it could happen to Lakeside Community Chapel. Pray for God's grace to keep protecting us and keep us alive. Because it's not difficult to fall into that chapel, especially the way this world is going and the persecution that's coming. So be prepared. And so this is a major warning that most don't even consider today. It's not even on the radar because they automatically think that it's a good church and we're okay. Um, We have to be very careful. Now, sir, I want to give you a couple of clues uh, that, um, uh, that indicates that a church is in danger of death. And there's many that can be given, but just four that uh, I came up with that I want to give to you. First, we know a church is in danger of death when it begins to worship its own pastor history, when it worships its own reputation, its own name. Because the moment they do that, they've turned the church from Jesus Christ to themselves. Right? They love to talk about what they've done, what they continue to do. They boast about how the community knows them and what they can do in the community and how much they're loved. See, the church in Sardis relied much on their past reputation. And as a result, complacency set in. And that's dangerous. I know of a church and the pastor who was like this. Went to a church one time where the pastor, he would say from the pulpit, no one preaches like me. I am not exaggerating. He said it several times. See, you know what his ministry was about. Right? Yeah. See, the problem is when, they, when you begin to do this, when you begin to worship your past, your history, your reputation, your name, when you begin to worship that, you begin to uh, sense a little need for prayer. Because look how successful we are. That's what happened. Little reliance on the power of the Holy Spirit. Greater confidence on human wisdom and human efforts. And thus there's many churches like that today. And so, one of the clues of a church that is dying is it begins to worship its own past or history, its reputation or name. Second, another clue is when it is more concerned with forms than with function in life. In other words, they're more concerned about how they appear, how they are seen. You know, we want people to come in and feel comfortable. And I've literally had pastors tell me this. When you come in, we want you to be able to sit back and relax and feel comfortable so that you'll just keep, keep coming back. And it's, it's a pleasure. It's comfortable. And so they're more concerned about how they, are, how they appear to the people rather than what God desires. A third clue, and this is very prevalent, it is more concerned with numbers and noses than with the spiritual quality of life. It's more concerned about numbers 
They desire more than anything to have more and more numbers, and we will do and say whatever we have to do to bring people in and keep them here. And the compromise that takes place as a result of numbers is amazing. I know personally way too many churches like this. Numbers is everything. It's the driving force of what they do. In fact, they'll put people in leadership who should not be in leadership, but people who are effective at drawing people in using different types of methods. It's dangerous. Right. What's the second part? They're more concerned about numbers and noses than... With spiritual quality of life. You don't have to put noses. I just did that. Just... <laughs> <laughs> And sadly, people that do this, they miss the purpose for the church. And that's why they're dead. See, yes, numbers play a role, but not the way that these people do. Ultimately, who gives growth to the church? Yeah. Remember in the book of Acts, God added to their number. Notice it wasn't Paul, it wasn't Peter, it wasn't the apostles added to the number. God added to their number. But too often churches focus on numbers and they make it about themselves. How many numbers do you have? And it's amazing. I used to go to this pastoral meeting weekly. Amazing. I mean, I was, I was just out of seminary, so I'm kind of new at this. But we would meet. And they shake your hand. How are you doing? You sit at the table. You know the first question they ask? How many were in Sunday service? Not what did you preach on? Not what God is doing? How many did you have in your service? How many attended Sunday morning? First question all the time, every week. I lasted about two months, never went back. <laughs> I am not exaggerating. That is the reality. I, I knew there was something wrong. I mean, I was new at this, but boy, I knew there was something wrong with that. And fourth, fourth clue that the church is in danger of death. When it is more involved with management than with ministry, or you could say when it is more involved with the physical over the spiritual. It's more concerned with managing different things rather than realizing life is about the spiritual. If that's not the highest priority, and I'm not saying we shouldn't manage things, I think we have to be careful. But too often we're focusing more on the management, more on the physical than we are on the spiritual. We're more consumed with what the church looks like, with the building and all of these things, than we are with the fact that we are dealing with souls for eternity. The building will burn one day. When I was in Bible college many, many years ago, there was a, a, a one guest teacher that made a statement that I'll never forget. He said, as far as I'm concerned, you give me four block walls and a door, and that's all I need, because it doesn't matter where we, where we meet. What matters are the souls of the people. And I thought, you know what? He's right. And yet, what do people get consumed with? Bigger and better. More buildings. More buildings. This is just my opinion. This is a frankism. But the way I look at it is rather than spending millions and millions of dollars on building another building to accommodate more and more people, why don't you take a group of people and go start another church in another place so the gospel begins to spread? and then start another church elsewhere, and that begins to spread. Dump money into that. That would be my philosophy, but I'm not saying that's the only way, but that's just the way I would look at it. Some way different, that's okay. 
But I just fear too often we spend so much on buildings rather than on people. Yeah, yeah, and they suffered for that. In fact, God started uh, removing, um, and and God did that purposely because when you begin to number, when you begin to look at it, what, what begins to happen? Well, it's like Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, remember Daniel warned him. Says, humble yourself before God. What did, uh, what did Nebuchadnezzar do? He looked about. Is this not Babylon the Great that I myself built? Remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? Seven years as an animal out in the field. Boy, I, mm, I would not like that. But he came to his mind and realized God is sovereign. So yes, it happens. And that's to me, is one of the clues that church is dying if it's not dead already. And those are just uh, a few of the clues that a church is drifting into deadness or is already dead. And there could be more that's added to this. Um, but I want us to move on. Herodotus is a story, and he said, Over the course of many years, the church in Sardis acquired the reputation for lax moral standards. And that's what happens to a church that begins to compromise. And so the greatest cause of the death of the Sardis church was spiritual insensitivity. They didn't discern their own spiritual condition. And this is the, uh, the greater destructive force than anything else in the church. We need to understand that. Understand, it's impossible to kill the church from the outside. Right? The gates of hell cannot prevail. So it's impossible to kill the church from the outside. The only way a church dies is from the inside. And that's what happened. Think about it. What does history tell us about persecution? When there's greater persecution, what happens to the church? It grows and gets stronger. But churches die from the inside. And the church at Sardis didn't die on purpose. It was not a deliberate break with the Lord. It was gradual. One pastor warned his church, he said, Since our hope is in the God who chooses a shepherd for his greatest king, chooses fishermen for apostles, and chooses to become a carpenter from Nazareth in his incarnation, we should be encouraged by every advance of the gospel, but be very careful about what we judge as impressive or fruitful or long-term. We have to be careful because it's very easy to be fooled and fall for what appears to be successful. And I spent a lot of time on this this morning because it is so prevalent and so very few people see it. And so I purposely wanted to spend this much time I know people right now who are attending such churches, and when you ask them about it, they say, yes, this is true, but not us. We're doing great. And that's the common response. It can't happen to them. I'm fine. We're fine. But in reality, you see what's going on, you see what their emphasis is, and you begin to worry, realizing, wait a minute, they are drifting into deadness. But you know, Frank, when you... I know that uh, the Lord provided for us to plant a church in, uh, <clears throat> in New England, and uh, we knocked on 4,000 doors, and only had one person come. Mm. And, uh, you know, uh, over a period of, we were there for, I've done a job up there, we were there for 18 months, and 
he planted the church and, uh, in Montville, Connecticut. And uh, we, the God, God brought folks and they said, the only reason we wouldn't come to, to this church is because you haven't been there a year yet. Hmm. If you haven't been there a year, we've seen it happen too many times. Hmm. But you're there and the church is basically your family. Sure. And then it grows to maybe 25 or 20. And that's, that basically is the church and you'll have people come in I can still remember this husband or this guy and girl came in and said, will you marry us? I said, well, are we believers? No. Uh, you know, uh, I'm sorry. It's, it's too bad. Uh, or they would come and they would say, well, we don't, we don't feel comfortable in the church. I said, well, if you don't feel comfortable in this church, let me help you find a church where you can, a fundamental church where you can grow. And they would say, you would send us to another church? I said, it's not about this church. It's you and how you're going to grow in the Lord. Not about being at this church. Yeah, and, and, and that's the goal of the church is, uh, as I said before, the, what is the purpose of the church? It is about the glory of Christ. <clears throat> it's interesting when you ask certain, like some of these people I've talked to, you know, about the church and the deadness and so forth. They say, oh, it's going great. And they tell me all these things that's going on. But you know what thing I never hear? I never hear them tell me about how they glorify Jesus Christ, how they honor him and lift him high. And many times I'll ask them, you know, that's great, you're involved, you've got all these things going, but please, how is it that you bring glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ? Because that's why we exist. They look at me like I got an eye in the middle of my forehead and say, what are you talking about? They don't even understand and know what that means. And that's, and it's very, it's, it's very prevalent. I mean, it is, it's extremely prevalent. That's, what's, that's what uh, uh, breaks my heart because there's, these churches are filled with people who are being misled. Good services, and we feel good and not convicted. And a good services when God shows you, or the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit came to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. Judgment, yep. And if we are not experiencing that, then something's wrong. Mm -hmm. It is, yeah. And my prayer for each Sunday morning, I, I pray constantly for our services that God will be lifted high and that every heart would feel and sense his presence and be overwhelmed. Because if we're not overwhelmed, think about who we're worshiping. When you think about God, how do you describe God? He's, he's indescribable. And he has opened up heaven. He says, come confidently to the throne of grace. What a privilege we have to come before a sovereign, holy God, before whom the greatest of angels uh, hide their faces. We can come freely and boldly. That should set us aback and shout, wow, how can this be? But too often people just go their merry ways. Not that big of a deal. It should be a big deal. It should overwhelm us. We should be stunned. Wow. What happens if you do, if God, by his sovereign will, sends you to a place where there is no preaching and the church is there? What, other than prayer, what is the next step? Do you write to pastors? Do you, you know, what? So For me. Did you uh, give to your friend who couldn't find the church in the area that you mentioned? Well, he keeps trying to get me to go up there and start a church. And I said, I'm not leaving here. <laughs> and I said, and I told him, I said, you have to keep praying. And gently, me personally, what I would do if I was in a place like that is I would uh, meet with pastors and ask them some of these questions. I just want to know where they're coming from and, and try to educate them and say, hey, 
why do you exist? Why does this church exist? What are you here for? What's it, what have you been called to by God? I want to bring them to that reality. Um, fortunately, by God's grace, I've not been in that situation because we have Lakeside here. But I would, I personally, if I ever, when I've, I, the reason why I came here is because I already knew Steve. Steve and I used to meet monthly, and so I've already asked all my questions. Okay, and he's asking me my questions. So that, that's, but that's what I would do is I want to sit and meet with the pastor. But you're a mature Christian. And when a young Christian goes to a church, I, I was looking at this list you gave me for us, and two, three, and four is pretty much from the church leadership, it looks like. Yeah. What, what's their focus? But if you're a young Christian, you're going into a church, you've got no clue. I know. So that's why, that's why I'm saying it's very dangerous. That's where we have to pray for these churches. We have to pray for these people. I mean, what do they do? Keep searching and finding. I say this, that there's many out there. But there are also some good churches. There are. And we need to find those. Sometimes it may take a couple of months. may even take a year. I have a friend on the other coast. It took him more than a year. But you keep searching. And if you know people in this way, work with them. Talk with them. Pray with them. Teach them. Read scripture with them. Help them to see. I mean, that's what we're called to do. You know, edify one another. Build each other up. Bring them to the lake side. <laughs> no, so, and seriously, if they can't find a church, yes, yes, why not? Why not? You know, it, it's, if there's no other church, then yes, do that. Sure. I, I want us to be aware that this is prevalent, and you, we can help people. Yes, bring them to Lakeside. If not, then find out about the churches that are around that you can trust in. Don't be afraid of talking to pastors. If a pastor's afraid to talk to you, then you know that's not a good church. Right? Yeah, exactly. And if you have to be the one that, and again, if it's long distance, it could be difficult. Although, with uh, all the internet and FaceTime and everything we have now, we can do it online. But still, meet with people if you have to. But it is hard. It, it is. It's hard. But see, this is what the enemy does. This is what Satan wants to do. He wants to weaken the church. And what a great way to weaken the church. Because if the church is weak, then, you know, if he's got victory, anything can happen. How can we have discernment without being considered legalistic? Discernment with cultural change, generation, or what have you. Discernment comes from the Holy Spirit. The best way to have discernment is to study God's word and to pray, asking God to his. So it depends on whatever the person um, sees. I mean, we look to leadership mm -hmm. and people higher than what we think we are. Mm -hmm. So we if should you see something in them that you're not quite sure of. Then it makes you think, well, heck, am I just being a legalist? Well, that, again, that's why I say it has to come back to God. His word, prayer. Uh, legalism, I think we... I'll give you a very quick um, definition for legalism. Legalism is not what you do and don't do. That's what a lot of people think. Well, I do this, I have this list of rules. No, that's not what legalism is. Legalism is anything you do or don't do. Because you think you're going to earn something from God. I'm going to do this, and then God will bless me. That's legalism. Okay? 
That's legalism. So sometimes people pray legalistically because they think, I'm going to pray, and if I pray, God will give me this and give me that. Well, you have to be careful. Why does God give us anything? Not because he owes you anything. Exactly, but by his grace alone, because that's his glory. So legalism is not the do's and don'ts in life. Legalism is the heart's motive in life. Do I do this because I want to impress God and God will then owe me and give me something? That's legalism. God owes you nothing but what? Wrath. And by his grace, he gives us grace in life. So it's, it's not a list of do's and don'ts. Because even um, uh, uh, scripture tells us, whatever you do that is not a faith is sin. So there are certain things you can do. And there's other things that make you feel uncomfortable. Don't do those things. That's the Holy Spirit at work in you. But legalism is, the, is not do's and don'ts. I think that's the biggest problem because too many people have defined it, well, we have this whole list of rules. That's legalism. No. No. This whole list of rules can be a good thing. The question is, is why do you do what you do? I'm going to keep this list of rules so that way I look good and God will bless me. That's legalism. I'm going to do this whole list of rules. Why? Because I love God and I want to display His glory for all to see. That's why we do it. If you do it for yourself, you're in the legalistic side. If you do it for God. Yes. And that's why I say there are people, I've met people that they have to get up at a certain time to pray and they say, I can't do that. I can't get up and live. My life is just a mess. I say, so you're telling me that if you pray, God owes you a good good day. They didn't know how to answer that. I'm not saying you shouldn't pray. What I'm saying is, why do you pray? Right? You go to church. Why do you go to church? I go to church because I'm supposed to. That's what they tell me. I'm supposed to go to church. Ooh, that's a blessing to God, isn't it? <laughs> no. We should be the most ecstatic people going to church. Why? Because we're gathering with brothers and sisters to worship the most high and holy God. That's exciting. I look forward to Sundays. That's the most fun time of my week. Because I'm spending time with brothers and sisters. And scripture says God inhabits the praises of his people. We come together. God is present. How can you not be excited? Now I'm getting carried away. But that's why we come. Not because I'm supposed to. That's legalism. That's legalism. And that will lead to a dead church. Wow. Wow. Got off on a rabbit trail. Sorry, Bruce. Anyway, let's go ahead and pray. That was a great answer. <laughs> see if I know how to turn this thing off. Gracious Father, thank you for your incredible, powerful word.